Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Idipod. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen Downey. On today's episode, we interview Landon Pontius about his essay, which outlines his journey from Christianity to atheism. He takes us through his upbringing, his overwhelmingly positive experience with the church, and where he's landed today. You'll find a link to his essay in the show notes below. We found this episode to be extremely insightful and thought-provoking. Please note that Alan's audio file for this episode was initially corrupted, hence the quality of his recording, but we were thrilled when we were able to recover it. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hit us with a Dr. Funk. I am your host, Dr. Aaron Funk, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Alan Kudrowski and Kristen Downey. Hi. Today we are joined by Landon Pontius. He is... Again, we have another local Orlando celebrity on, uh, which is very exciting. We're having Landon on today because Landon had, he's had a very interesting journey through his life and a very interesting story to tell and kind of came out with this story when he wrote an essay about it um, a little over a year ago. And Alan and I were actually two of the people that he first talked to uh, when he was kind of going through this, whatever you want to call it. Um, so Landon, if you want to kind of kick off with kind of how you grew up and what led you to write the essay and where you are today, how that's how you've landed there and then how that sort of affected your personal relationships <laughs> okay. And then we'll, of course, have uh, questions as we go, as we do. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, tell, give us the give us the lowdown. Okay, east Texas. Cool. Yeah, East Texas. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up in East Texas, as you said, um, on the campus of a ministry, Christian ministry called YWAM, which is an acronym for Youth with a Mission. My parents were full-time missionaries for 30 plus years. So I had, I was, so I was raised Christian, but I think even to say born and raised Christian is a bit of an understatement. It was kind of my whole, whole life and context. You know, I grew up obviously traveling a lot with my parents on mission trips and went to a Christian private school and did you know a lot of classes and camps and all you know i've checked all of the christian childhood boxes um my childhood was honestly amazing i did you do bible drills oh yeah awana i think is the group i was in which is like one of those like youth groups that focuses on a lot of bible memorization it turn it tries to turn the Bible into a sport, <clears throat> which nice. works, I guess, for, <laughs> for kids. Um, yeah, my yeah, so many tools. Um, so my childhood was honestly pretty pretty idyllic in a lot of ways. I really healthy family. I have four siblings, um, so pretty big family. But my parents are amazing. It was a really safe community and environment to grow up in the campus there is like 550 acres or something so it was like me and all my little friends had like the world's biggest backyard basically to run around in and 
so I, I look back on that pretty fondly and count myself pretty lucky to have been kind of raised that way. And so fast forward a bit, I moved away from Texas to go to school in Orlando, which is where I live now. Um, I studied audio engineering and I now work at uh, Disney for Walt Disney Imagineering, where I produce audio content for the Disney parks. And once I moved here, I moved with a friend of mine from YWAM and we got plugged into a church here pretty quickly. And I was very quickly involved with the worship team there and kind of built relationships with the leadership there and um, eventually became what's called an elder at that church, which I've always thought that term was a little wizardy. <laughs> Um, I say, it sounds like an elf. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, like something on a cloak. Right, exactly. Um, but, it, you know, it kind of just continued the trend of my life, which has just been kind of full-blown involvement in everything Christian. And, I mean, it was great. I'm one of those people who doesn't really have a bad story or experience from it. I mean, it... it served me pretty well and I really enjoyed it even and um, but it was after moving away from home um, to Orlando that I started a process now very popularly known as deconstruction. Um, I've always been a very analytical kind of skeptical person but had never really aimed that part of me at my faith itself. Landon is a five for the listeners. He is an Enneagram five. I am. Super, like capital five. Very <laughs> five. Um, and yeah, so I, you know, in five fashion, I was pretty systematic about the whole thing and was kind of just going down the list of sort of different beliefs that I had and kind of interrogating those ideas and trying to dig into them and really the intention of it early on was not really discontent even it was it really kind of was born out of an intention to really bolster my faith in a lot of ways and try to and I, I honestly expected to find like more faith and more kind of confidence and certainty and just felt like the more I digged that you know wasn't wasn't what I was uncovering and so you know initially I guess I was kind of making a move from a more conservative Christianity into a more progressive Christianity and things were just kind of evolving in that sense and there wasn't a lot of existential risk necessarily to my faith but Eventually, I think if you follow that path, it doesn't take long usually to get to pretty foundational ideas about what the Bible is and isn't, and you can kind of start flicking those those domino. And um, yeah, so that um, over the course of a few years kind of led to sort of an official deconversion and... I chose to kind of come out, as you put it, uh, by kind of writing my thoughts down in an essay and... Just add really quick, 
the reason that this story is, is substantial, especially to us being from the Orlando area, is because you, Landon, were known kind of in the community as like one of the leaders, especially one of like the younger, more progressive, like seemingly approachable, almost like figures in the Orlando Christian community. And you had been for a long time. And so um, you were always very like vocal on Facebook. You were always very vocal on social media. It's just about open dialogue, especially when it came to belief and, you know, currently politics and all those things involved. So your piece being kind of like publicly submitted was pretty substantial because of a lot of those things. And I'm curious, like just as a precursor to a lot of this stuff, like did how aware were you and how driven were you by like what the reaction was going to be like where, where was the motive in writing this to begin with and like did a, a public perception or or people hearing it and reading it and their experiences after reading it was that like a motivator at all in this it was certainly an an important element of it i don't know that i'd say it was necessarily a motivator i think initially the essay kind of served as an exercise for me personally I think just the process of really trying to put something like that into writing kind of forces you into paring things down and really kind of putting yourself in that context kind of forces a certain amount of clarity. And <clears throat> so for me, that was kind of the initial thing was just trying to work through some of those ideas. And I knew, I knew it would have an effect like that a little bit in the community. Um, I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make a point, but I do feel very strongly that ideas should be kind of challenged and engaged with. And I knew that even for myself as a sort of check, I think sort of doing something like that a bit more public maybe than some people might prefer was going to be useful because I think the dialogue and that feedback is something that I I needed because I think it was still an ongoing process and so yeah it was kind of just what felt good. I, I think the motive was obviously something that was talked about amongst people because I even have friends that you and I both know who when talking about the piece kind of on the side, we, um, I, I kind of assumed your position in that, like the, the, the process, the dialogue, even if it's controversial is necessary because it, it, it eventually leads to some form of like better understanding of the truth, hopefully. And for me during like my whole story of kind of my deconstruction, which I didn't really know what was going on at the time or like what to call it, but it, it's mm -hmm. similar to yours. And I'm sure at some point I'll talk about it on this podcast, but mm -hmm. I was always very like understanding of what you were doing. Whereas like even friends of ours, you and I, they thought you were kind of making a statement and like almost trying to like ruffle the feathers of a lot of the people in the community. And I'm curious if you think that like your political activity on Facebook and like the kind of the hostility that we are experiencing environmentally, like so consistently made people think that that's what you were doing because it, it almost people thought in like, I guess the landscape of where we are now that maybe you were attacking people when you like you claim that you weren't obviously. Sure. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think I went to pretty serious lengths in the essay to try to remove as much of that sort of lost in translation <laughs> uh, response as possible. I really try as much as possible to you know, foster meaningful conversations. And so whether those are about politics or religion, I've always tried to kind of take the line that any conversation that's in good faith is productive and meaningful. And so I tried to come in kind of as open-handed as possible and even explicitly a few times in that essay said like, I am not, <laughs> I'm not attacking anyone. You know, this isn't from a place of bitterness or regret or resentment. I think that's something that maybe was a little confusing for a lot of people and sort of how to approach it because I think that sort of, um, that sort of bitter ex-Christians, a bit of a cliche, at least for, people inside of the Christian community. And so I was kind of taking a very different line. And, but I just think with politics and religion specifically, I think the reason those are so, such hot topics and so contentious is because those are generally the ideologies most closely related to people's identity. And I think anytime you touch something like that and I can, you know, try to be as sort of diplomatic and dispassionate in sort of how I challenge those ideas. But because that is connected to who someone considers themselves to be, you're always going to have people that take that personally because it is personal to them. Um, and it's, and it's hard for them to disconnect it from themselves in a sense. I'm curious as a follow-up to that. Um, I know I'm like asking a million questions, my bad. I guess that's the point. I'm curious because we've had conversations um, about this same thing, about how the association to these affiliations, whether it's religious or political, they become part of people and almost more so in a way like a, like a sports fandom as well as, mm -hmm. you know, part of how they view their culture and the people around them. They, they view you know, their communities the same as they do themselves. And so potential like def deferring from an idea is deferring from like a pack, so to speak. And I guess I'm, I'm curious what your thought is on if, if like those, if creating maybe even somewhat of a contentious environment because you, you almost have to because these things will lead to those things because of what we just talked about, about it being part of their identity. If it is still helpful in that like, is time and space and maybe a cushion of like lacking in communication and letting like i guess things breathe do you think that would lead to a more um i guess like uh, a peaceful environment and peaceful discord or have you seen that like people who maybe have responded fiery or like very contentiously in return at first because they've been able to kind of like have the this peace and these ideas marinate have then eventually met you with like more middle ground intention etc yeah, I'd have to think about that. Um, so I guess maybe I'll fill in sort of my side of how it seemed that people responded and maybe we can compare notes. I don't know. 
I don't know what people were saying behind my back, so maybe you guys have uh, <laughs> a little more insight on that. Kind of from my firsthand experience, it was really positive. I mean, I even got a lot of messages, private messages from people who were Christian and are Christian that kind of went out of their way to just thank me for sort of treading lightly in the sense of thanking me for being respectful, um, which I really did try to do. So, so in that sense, it seemed mostly positive. So you're always going to have outliers kind of on either, either side. I think, yeah, I don't know. I just think exposure to challenge whether it's positive in the short term for people is kind of always a beneficial sort of force that's kind of a life <laughs> a life principle for me and so i think it was inevitable that something like that does ruffle feathers but again i just think it's important to discuss those things and i think there's a lot of like lurkers on a post like that you know where a lot of people are reading the dialogues that are happening and even that I've found over the years to be really meaningful that there are a lot of people that are getting a lot of value out of those you know seemingly tense topics being broached and that they find a lot of community in it well my thought on it Landon just from reading it and just for some clarification you said that you were an elder Mm. Um, like an elfin elder, which I loved. <laughs> um, but you were a leader in your church, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, at the time, well, not at the time of the posting, but at the time of my deconstruction, yeah, I was a, an elder, which, again, maybe an easier way for people who are kind of unfamiliar with that verbiage is basically being on the board of directors for the organization that is the church. Um so I was kind of on that board and then I oversaw and supervised the like worship ministry. So I was the like worship music director for a while. So yeah, I had an official position as a leader in that church for some years before that. Yeah. Got you. Because with that, I just think of just how I grew up in the church and how it was. You see anyone who is a leader in an organization like the church and everything is just magnified and they look to you for so many mm -hmm. things. And so I can just imagine, well, can and can't because I've never been a leader in a church. But at the same time, just when you put something like that public, I'm sure all of your, for lack of a better word, flock just are all of a sudden scattering. And they're just like, wait, I was following this person. They had this life that was just so ingrained and so known and then all of a sudden it just completely changes course and then now these people are just like wait what just happened so from their point of view I can only just imagine so hearing that it was mainly positive is awesome for sure but for you I'm just like god just kind of hard to like wrap my brain around just all of it yeah no it's a great point I think from the from the perspective of that specific church community, 
I think there was some, yeah, confusion. I think there's definitely, that definitely seemed like the space where people were a little more confused about my motives because it felt like, okay, you know, it's one thing to to deconvert or lose these ideas, but it feels like another thing to sort of draw a line in the sand in some way or take a public stance because it feels like now you're working against the people that you've yeah been a part of for a long time and yeah being having been a leader in that community yeah it is a weird it is a very strange dynamic to sort of have those conversations with people that you've either very directly led and have had like a very personal impact in their sort of journey of faith um even to those that are more acquaintances but yeah it's definitely it's a weird thing. <laughs> it's a weird thing to do. I think it's probably worth mentioning that our previous guest was the pastor of that church and still is. <laughs> oh, Mr. Ryan Adams. He's one of my best friends still. He, he was saying that, you know, I, we told him that you were going to be on uh, next. And he said that you guys still have a lot of, you guys have a lot of great conversations, which doesn't surprise me. He's a, a really great person to talk to. Yeah. What was the idea of you guys both being on at the same time and we're just going to like moderate your debate? I'd love it. We've <laughs> we've joked many times about drinking whiskey and having <laughs> recording those conversations cuz they do they do happen a lot and I've for years kind of texted him little kind of theological challenges or <laughs> things like hey, this doesn't seem like it makes sense, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Piggybacking off of her question about your time as, like, a leader, I'm curious how, did you, one, were, was it kind of something that people saw coming? Had you had kind of conversations with people in the process? And did your, um, were you kind of, I guess, slowed by to, to kind of make the decision either internally and or like publicly because of your role there? Cause like, I understand that kind of like breaking up from a family because when you have like a pack of people that are, and this kind of ties into the rest of the conversation, but when you have a pack of people that are kind of tied to one ideology, your separation of that, it, even if they still accept you and still consider you a friend, it removes you from that like family environment and all the, and potentially some of the like events that come with it. You obviously don't see those people as much because you go into the church on Sundays or whenever you would go, probably doesn't happen anymore. Um, And I'm kind of curious how that played into like your thinking. Cause I know for me, like that was the, you know, even though my deconstruction was something that kind of happened over time, I don't even know when I specifically made a decision it was like something that I've almost even considered in the past, like rejoining simply because I like liked the family and like the lifestyle because it's so hard to find that sort of community, especially of people who are like presently driven via their religion um, anywhere else. Well, I mean, the simple answer is it was difficult and, you know, rather painful, not necessarily the, like I said, not necessarily the reaction or that anything like explicitly severed that from their side. But yeah, I mean, again, for me, this was my, this was my lifelong worldview, my context since day one, you know, it's how I've, how I'd seen the world for my entire life and really had never 
ventured far from at least those core ideas about God's existence and the truth of Christianity. And so I think there was a lot of, a lot of loss and a lot of, I don't know, kind of feeling a little lost because I think there's this space that's created when you sort of remove something that large that takes time to to fill or to, you know, sort of rebuild something in its place. And yeah, I think that gap can feel disorienting and and lonely, but there's this kind of weird... I don't know, I'm still kind of working out language for some of this, but a friend of mine wrote a poem recently that had this line in it that just felt like it hit it on the head. And she asked, how do you grieve a loss you wanted? And for me, I just feel like that really kind of sums that up. You know, there's freedom in it. I mean, I think once that switch was kind of flipped fully and I had really kind of separated from those ideas, I experienced a lot of freedom and a lot of, I don't know, really like increased presence and kind of an understanding of myself and a, honestly like a lot of optimism and hope and kind of an appreciation of beauty that I feel I didn't have or had in a different way before but that process is really tough and you know as an Enneagram 5 I'm not particularly emotional our sort of like (laughs) strength and and weakness is that we're a bit dispassionate and so that means we're like very effective deconstructionist but there that emotion does catch up and I think there were and are even times where you definitely kind of feel that loss of community and recognize sort of why so many churches are you know community landmarks in so many ways just because they have been or they have really provided this infrastructure of community and this kind of social hub for a lot of societies for a long, long time. And I think, yeah, it is hard to, to, yeah, to figure out sort of what's your new, what's your new normal and how do you, how do you find that elsewhere? Cause a lot of that is, you know, just basic human needs. And, um, yeah, I think finding ways to sort of cultivate that same kind of community or, I don't know, figuring out ways to kind of still still keep it without sort of needing to engage necessarily or condone some of those specific beliefs. It is definitely a, a journey. It's not something I feel that I've sorted out completely, but um, yeah, it had a lot of a lot of ups and downs for sure. I don't know if that answered your question completely, but. In the space that you were speaking of that, you know, with the deconstruction of your faith that just, I don't want to say vanish because it's not that easy, but at the same time with that empty space now, have you been able to, I know you were kind of saying like, you're still 
trying to figure it out and put words to it. Have you been able to fill that space at all with other things? I know you were speaking to being more present and more focused, but on just like being in the moment and the beauty of that. But is there anything else that has come into that space to fill it a bit more? Would it be more of like your search for scientific reasons or anything like that into just life in general? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I I think some of the sort of resolution, if I could call it that, has been due to me just kind of attributing the source of some of those things. You know, if we're talking about like community and hope and love and peace and, you know, these ideas that when you're in Christianity are very explicitly from God and due to your relationship with God and with others. And I think one thing that really felt like a big a big step forward was after leaving Christianity and, you know, kind of having a little of that, you know, that space, I think realizing ultimately that those things were still there, that the hope I had before or the peace that I experienced or that was available to me, that it was really still there and that those elements of myself whether in my personality or my character those things were still still present and I think that was a big that was a big moment in a sense not that it was necessarily a short amount of time but you just you deflect a lot of that stuff or I did at least I'll speak for myself as a Christian I think it's easy to take this stance of I'm I'm just flesh and blood, right? I'm superficial and selfish and prideful and it's only God that gives me the positive attributes, right? Like he gets credit for all the good things that happen or the good things that come from my life. And I think a big revelation, if I could call it that, after leaving was kind of the ownership that I was able to take of both the positives and the negatives, you know, looking back at accomplishments or, you know, characteristics in my life and saying like, yeah, you know, I, I did that or that was, that was in me and it still is. But then also looking back on those mistakes and there's sort of that flip side of now I, didn't have that, you know, crutch in a sense of sort of deflecting that to evil forces or Satan or, you know, the sort of vague, the enemy attribution that happens in the church a lot and had to kind of say, okay, well, that was kind of just me too. And so I think for me, it was part of that, right? Kind of a shift in that perspective and that attribution and then part of it was just kind of a a change in habits where instead of prayer I do more mindfulness meditation and kind of you know gain a similar kind of centering benefit from that and 
yeah, I think pressing into scientific explanations, I think really does. And for most people, I would hope that it really should, if you're kind of postured right, it should really generate a lot of that same awe and mystery that I think Christians often get from the definition of God. And so, I, yeah, I think a lot of it was kind of just like redefining the sources for those things. I recognize I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm kind of just trying to think it through out loud a bit. So now I have two questions. I'm pulling an Alan, and I'm just going to go ahead and put them both out there. Do you think you can have spirituality in science or science and spirituality? Two, can you have faith without being a Christian, a.k.a. faith in yourself, faith in someone else? I don't know. Can you do you think you can have that without Christianity? So, yes, I think I'll with your first question with kind of science and spirituality, I think part of that is maybe dependent on your definition of spirituality, but a kind of intellectual hero of mine is Sam Harris. And he's kind of at the same time, one of these kind of new atheist figures where he does debates and has written books that are very, you know, aggressive in some senses against almost hostile against religious ideas, both from Christianity and from Islam. But he's also a huge proponent of meditation and even he would call it spirituality in this kind of pursuit of understanding our inner life. And I think consciousness itself is a sort of like internal universe where there's a lot to be explored. And so I think there's definitely a big opportunity for spirituality and spiritual practices that can be really edifying and beneficial that don't require an associated belief that makes some sort of cause and effect claim about, you know, the physical world around us. Um, so yeah, I think there definitely can be, I think you can have both without that being a contradiction. Um, your second question was, remind me. You're fine. Can you have faith without Christianity, aka ah, faith right. in yourself? Sorry, I'm just like picking your brain right now. I'm very intrigued. No, that's great. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the word faith is tricky. So I think even within the Christian community, there's some sort of differing definitions of sort of what we mean by the word. And so, yeah, there is sort of that colloquial sense, which is you have confidence in or, you know, sort of like maybe slightly overly optimistic disposition <laughs> towards a specific idea or something. Um, in that sense, obviously, that's still... But, you know, that's not necessarily even a religious word in that context. But I think where I would maybe take issue with it now is that 
faith is often offered as an alternative way of knowing, right? It's, it's given as um, a way of coming to and a way of holding knowledge, right? And often I think that's where this, you know, sort of historical conflict between science and religion happens, which is, you know, the argument implicit or explicit of religion is oftentimes that holding an idea or holding a claim supported by faith is enough um, to consider it truth and to claim, to make definitive claims sort of about life and, you know, what happens when we die and what are the characteristics of God and does he exist and how does he behave and how does he interact with the world? You know, there's a whole list of things. But I think, so that one kind of version of the word faith in in terms of like relying on something or having confidence in something, I think, yeah, totally great. I think I would take a little issue with the other sense and kind of argue that that I think is harder to to hold without kind of religious ideology attached because for me it really comes down to sort of what standard do you place on the evidence needed to support things that you say and claims that you make and so so yes and no i've got i've got a follow-up that i've been Great. eager Great. to ask and that's a good segue Ooh. Ooh. Uh, okay, so I, I can, in, in the past, have classified myself as like, kind of a more of a, like an optimistic nihilist in a way, and I know that is a huge uh, contradiction, but it, it feels like that. Um, it, I'm curious because I've always kind of said that I felt like faith was a almost more of a detriment to humanity than it has been something beneficial. And while I've noticed that that faith is a large proponent of a lot of the good things that happen in this world. I had a professor that once said that he, a philosophy professor, I don't want to sound too uh, uh, educational or studious, but it was like philosophy one. It was really boring and super easy. Um, but he said that he would recommend faith to people. If you have the capacity for belief and it's something you naturally reside to, then do it because it makes so much so much of the rest of life easier and mm. at first i kind of liked that because i was in the middle of my deconstruction and i felt like life was getting more difficult even though i was kind of maybe experiencing some of the stresses that come with deconstruction because you're kind of like losing that inner monologue you've i've I'd been feeling like i was talking to someone for like the last however many years that i believed and now that was gone and it had this sense of like emptiness and loneliness that was like kind of scary at first yeah. so when he said that that kind of made me almost like take interest in the idea that choosing into faith was more of a benefit to someone's life and potentially my life than pursuing my deconstruction further. And if that like naivety was able to be kind of obtained even somewhat knowingly, then it might be a, a better option. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it is in kind of what you said speaks to this like a separation of language, like we call faith one thing, but it really is like a bunch of kind of different mm -hmm. forms of it. Yeah. And I'm curious what you think, like kids growing up, especially Americans, it changes by generation, but it's kind of generally the same thing. I would think 
Do you think that growing up with like an assumed ideology, whether it was given from parents or church or whatever, however you came into whatever faith it is you have, do you think starting with a blank slate and kind of being given um, alternate options to begin with is maybe innately better for the human mind in its own development and like almost giving yourself the ability from a young age to choose into whatever it is you find out about the world, which seems like it's obviously the option that I would choose, but I, I think that the morality is kind of like uh, proposed and taken on by kids that kind of helps them take on a different moral code. One that you've referenced even in your piece that a lot of like the goodness of your life has come from you, what you know about you know Jesus and you know what you learned from Christianity and community yeah. and how to treat people all that. What do you think is is a better way for the human mind to develop, especially like within the context of today's social landscape, whatever? Do you think it's almost better to have an assumed ideology to start so that you can maybe like put forth some of those morals or do you think we should be kind of like left to find it out for ourselves so you asked about sort of the value of sort of having that ideology and almost choosing into it for its you know utility in a sense i think I think there are very obvious benefits to having a clear ideology. If it wasn't beneficial, at least in a subjective sense, it would not have stuck around this long. Um, you know, I'm a general proponent of this idea of mimetic evolution. So Richard Dawkins in the 70s, kind of coined this phrase called the meme, um, which we now are very familiar with. But at the time was this kind of new idea that was used to define a unit of culture. And I talk about this in the essay a little bit. Um, but his kind of theory that he put forward was that ideas in these units of culture, these memes, um, sort of evolve through time in the same way that physical organisms do sort of having the the forces of natural selection in play on them and a lot of that it's almost self-evident if you kind of you know sound it out it's kind of like saying okay the best ideas that are best suited for their cultural context will survive and spread um and the ones that aren't sort of by definition will not. And so I think we see evolution sort of, or we see religious ideology over time sort of take these changes and absorb progress that's happening um, outside of it in society and sometimes is a catalyst for that progress. Sometimes, you know, it's moving the other direction, but you kind of see you see these ideas sort of being honed over time. And so I think what we, we do find, yeah, is super beneficial for most people. I think there's a lot of, a lot of peace and clarity on an individual level. I think there's a lot of utility in that, you know, it, it lessens grief when you truly believe that you're going to see relatives again after you die. It, you know, it changes, it changes the way sometimes you view hardships. If you, you know, you have 
you have faith that someone is in control and that justice is going to be served to you know in sort of both directions that the the bad guys won't get a good won't get away with it and the good guys will sort of get what they deserve as well and um yeah i think there's a lot of power in that i think what's tricky is yeah it's not a simple answer to you know, if I had an easy answer for sort of what <laughs> what a one-for-one one replacement is for religion, um, I'd probably be selling a lot of books or something. But I think, I think really what we're talking about is the role that narrative plays in our lives. And, you know, as humans, we're very story-driven creatures and we really need to contextualize our own experiences and observations and our knowledge into stories about ourselves and about the world we live in, right? It's how we understand where we fit socially. It's how we understand our potential and our values. And it's how we, um, it's how we organize people around similar values and I think I think a positive step is to find ways to kind of generate and cultivate those kind of compelling narratives that don't require that sort of religious angle of sort of trying to answer questions that you know I don't believe we have actual answers to you know narratives that allow a little more of that unknown to you know that allow space for just kind of shrugging your shoulders sometimes and saying yeah you know I have some ideas about that thing but mostly I have no idea what you know the actual answer is I have no idea what happens when we die if anything and but I think there's this little line in the essay that was kind of this last minute edition before I published it that I've actually thought a lot about. And it's, I sort of talk about the value of these, you know, kind of useful fictions or these narratives about who we are. But I think that the people who should be kind of cultivating those narratives are the artists that I think that's, a huge sort of role of art in culture and society is to to give us those narratives that make us better and that empower us to be better and to to see ourselves as improving hopeful beings and to to see each other as sort of worthwhile causes and you know I think we see such a lack of that right now in society and in politics, especially um, the narrative is about the binary, right? It's about the other and each side's trying to define sort of their own version of absolute certainty and clarity about right and wrong and good and evil and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Um, so along answer for a long question but I think I think storytelling 
is a really big part of this. And I think if we can cultivate in our own lives ways to tell ourselves stories that give us those those experiences that give us those advantages that help pick us up, you know, that can really function as a North Star without needing to sprinkle in answering all of our fears and questions, you know, I think is a huge opportunity ahead of us. I think it's obviously a huge need for society as a whole, but I think for those of us who have left religion, I think it's a big project for us individually, but also something I, I think is really, is really needed just in kind of the, the future arc of humanity. I've often wondered kind of your, what you said about art throughout history and how it's taught us a lot about our culture and things like that. I've kind of wondered if, is it better for society and societal mentality um, when, I, when in certain eras when what we learned about life was often seen through art and things were more idealistic overall and you know uh, po poetry and, and different forms of art were, were kind of what helped us describe our world and as later generations then took on those understandings we saw those eras as different and I'm curious in like an age saturated by communication like over communication over stimulation over information uh, you know, misuse of it do you think like, those eras result in a purer form of humanity or do you think that like even though it's really ugly right now that we're seeing kind of like the actual manifestation of who people are and will it result will either result in like a better or worse outcome eventually in your opinion i know that's kind of weird i think language is man it has such a powerful way of shaping our perspective and our perception of what's really happening or what's true. And I think, yeah, artistic descriptions of things do kind of have a way of becoming a lens. And I think people can fall prey to compelling language all the time, even if it's against their sort of better judgment in a sense. I think there's a lot of kind of forces at play when it comes to motivating behavior. You guys are serving up some good ones. <laughs> My question, yeah, overall, and it, it is like a simple but a complex one. It's just like how we view, I guess, history through the art, uh, like through the lens of art, does it, is, are those eras in which like information and kind of some of the actualities of life were less available because you know information was less available but also the fact that like now we're dealing with a lot of misinformation and so i'm curious if like you think when looking at like history as a whole and how we perceive certain eras sometimes good times sometimes bad are, are like believed to us now in present day as being either much worse or much like more peaceful or much more like blissful or is like the chaotic kind of like garbage disposal of how we're perceiving and acting and uh, communicating throughout the world today, do you think it results in a more like accurate representation of what humanity actually is? And have we kind of like, even though those eras in which we had like these artistic or artistic revolutions and things like that seem like really cultivating and like they were rapidly growing and advancing and blah, blah, blah. 
um, and now we kind of look like we've, you know, are, are broken in a lot of ways, and, and, and what's come of, uh, of humanity is a lot more uh, contentious and all those things. But does it lead, even though through like all the chaos and ugliness that we see today, does it lead to like a more potentially pure version, like filtered version, even if it isn't something that everyone would seem like as pet or think is as palatable as the, um, you know, the alternative, which is. Yeah. So you're kind of asking about the role of art in fantasy and how those kind of that, yeah, you can paint a picture and, you know, to the positive or negative, that's not true. I think one thing that's tricky is that art needs context. And so it's hard looking back sometimes and taking, you know, romantic poems from, you know, the 1600s or something. And, you know, it's easy to kind of idealize that, (laughs) that, society really through the eyes of the wealthy and I think what's I think a sort of responsibility we have and something that Ryan actually jokes a lot that you know we're just shouting nuance into the void and I just feel like incorporating nuance is really I think what carries us forward where it's it's not I don't think it's about wanting to overplay the positive fantasy at the risk of sort of negating the areas that need attention and it's not about overhyping those areas that need attention you know to the expense of real like hope and ambition but I think it's producing art that has the nuance and the sort of authentic humanity in it enough to kind of have a little of that juxtaposition. I think a little paradox is good. And I think what we're seeing now, yes, it's, you know, it's tribal and it's, it's aggressive and it's hostile. And there's a lot of things that are easy to, to see as being very negative, I think, and this is kind of just my personal conviction, but I really think nuances is the missing ingredient there, right? It's the people want clarity and they want certainty. And I think we need art that challenges us in both directions. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how that will play out. I think it's, yeah, it's easy to misread the world through art in a sense because you know it's not often intended even to be a objective description of reality but it's meant to sort of point us towards ideals I think in its best form so yeah I don't I don't know if that helps answer that question at all I don't really know where it's going but I think it Again, I th- I'll do it in probably most of my answers if it's not explicitly my actual answer, which is just to say that I think there's a lot of nuance, and I think the more we lean into that, the better. Aaron, what do you got on that piece of paper? Uh, I got a couple things. So, well, let's start with this. 
I really like that what I think is fascinating is you are someone who didn't really have any bad experiences with Christianity. And the majority of people that abandon Christianity in some form or another usually have some negative experience to go along with it. And you don't have that, um, which I think is a very important part of this conversation. Because you are not bitter and you are not angry, uh, which is common. I think that's such an important part of this conversation. So I think my first question, did this happen all at once or did you slowly sort of shed things like were you a five-point Calvinist and then you first let go of total depravity and then you know how like was there this sort of shedding of rigid layers that allowed you to land where you land in yeah I think it was pretty gradual it, it yeah it did kind of start as a sort of move towards just a more sort of open-handed version of my sort of childhood Christian faith. Um, you know, a lot of sort of common first questions are oftentimes kind of centered around the Bible. What is the Bible? Is the Bible inerrant, meaning like without flaw or mistake, in essence that it's like, divinely sourced um and more or less says exactly what god intends it to say i think that's that's often a kind of early one of those early domino for people just because it's really i don't know that's one of those that's kind of surprising it's lasted this long even it's like it kind of t- makes total sense and until you think about it. It's like the Bible just says too much for that to be true. It says too much in too many directions. And so I think it kind of started with like, how do you reconcile the Bible internally with itself? And let alone sort of with lived experience and sort of what we know about reality. And so I think, yeah, it was kind of starting with a few of those ideas and um, I think hell was an, an early one um, for me. And I kind of understood. I think that's common for other people too. Like how do, how do we square what's supposed to be an all-powerful, loving God that's sort of, you know, the big thing about his love is supposed to be that's unconditional, except that it seems like it's the literal definition of conditional, right? Like, do this or else, you know. Um, and there are ways of sort of couching that in theology where it's not God's fault, but it is kind of what happens. And so I think, you know, it started with kind of questioning these ideas and trying to dig into, okay, I have this sort of inherited belief. What does that come from? Why do I believe that? Why do we believe that? What is that based on? And sort of trying to dig a few layers deeper and then, like, you know, in the example of sort of hell, a literal hell, you know, sort of a eternity of torment, um, it was just kind of moving out the other end of that by saying, like, 
I'm still a Christian, but I think that piece of theology is wrong. You know, and taking more of what would be considered like a universalist stance where God kind of makes a way for everyone and or it could be sort of what's called annihilation annihilationalism, which is, you know, the lights kind of go out if you're not going to heaven when you die. Um, so there's no like revenge or punishment sort of for your wicked ways. It's just you kind of don't get invited to the party. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of reshaping some of those ideas, sort of redefining, leaving some of them behind. It's pretty gradual, I think, just kind of loosening some of those beliefs and kind of dropping some of them to the point that when it got to those foundational beliefs, I didn't really feel like there were a lot of heavy ideas on top of them anymore, right? I didn't feel like I was pulling the rug out from under my faith. It wasn't the house of cards, you know, and I was just kind of starting at the bottom. It was really like, okay, I feel like I've picked apart a lot of things. And when I look back, I don't, there doesn't seem to be that much left. So it was really gradual. And then there were a few moments where the sort of realization of progress happens. You know, it's like you're walking, 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 and then it just takes a while for you to like turn around and look back and realize how far you've walked. And I think that was kind of one of those things. For me, a turning point was reading Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation. So here in Orlando, there was this big Christian evangelical event called The Send that was happening in Orlando, Christians from all over the country and the world that come to Orlando to go to this big stadium and basically have this day long um, event with speakers and worship bands and um, the point of it being to sort of empower, empower and equip and inspire people into missions, both as a, an actual profession, but then largely just kind of in their own lives. And so it's very like missions focused. And I live like three miles from that stadium. And my deconstruction had already been going on for a long time. I had already kind of moved out of those leadership positions at the church. And so many people I know from my life growing up in Texas and in that ministry and YWAM um, and people I know here from the church from all over were all right up the street from my house. And I was sitting on my couch reading this book called A Letter to a Christian Nation while the live stream of that event was on my computer just because I couldn't resist the curiosity. And it's a short little book. I read it in a few hours, I think, and got to the end of it, kind of realizing that I'd sort of been nodding along the whole time, that there weren't any ideas in it necessarily, or I thought he was going too far, or that his sort of core critique wasn't more or less accurate. And it was in that sort of strange context, both having this event up the street that more or less kind of summarized the entire culture of my 
the first 25 years of my life. And then me kind of in this sort of figurative and literal position of sort of being separated from that, sort of leaning into something else, um, was kind of a big moment. So it was sort of like this gradual thing. And then, I don't know, whenever it kind of got, not to use a media term, but kind of got like rendered <laughs> in a sense was I finished that book and for the first time asked myself, am I still a Christian? Because I think I've kind of pulled out the the last <laughs> of the, you know, beliefs that were hanging on, the last sort of version of this kind of broader supernatural powers, you know, it gets kind of more and more vague as you sort of move through that oftentimes. And so, yeah, it kind of it had some resolution in a kind of powerful moment for me where it was sort of like asking that question, knowing that the answer was, no, I'm not still a Christian, but needing to kind of say that out loud to myself in a sense. So, yeah, so it's a bit of both. And it was the deconstruction process itself was probably three, three or four years. So maybe five, um, of more or less like kind of intentional deconstruction. And then, yeah, once it kind of got to the end, it felt like that switch kind of got flipped in a moment. At the point of like kind of the finalization of your deconstruction, were you ready for it by that time or at the point of it's like when you kind of had that moment of that epiphany and, and were able to like actualize it, um, was it still coupled with like fear and kind of like stress? Yeah, I think it was. Um, like I said before, I'm a little more disconnected from my <laughs> emotions sometimes in the in the moment than I even would like to be, you know, it's kind of a two-edged sword. Um, yeah, but in that, in that moment, I, I do kind of recall like feeling a lot, but it was, it was not clear <laughs> emotions, you know, it was very bittersweet, but I, it was honestly mostly positive in that moment I think I was ready so I kind of closed that book sort of sat there staring at the wall a little bit kind of processing what I was about to admit to myself and then I think once I did it really was a big relief it was a big kind of weight off my shoulders part of just not kind of feeling like I was done in some sense wrestling with so many of these things and kind of battling so much of my indoctrination. I don't necessarily even mean that in a negative sense, but um, yeah, I, I remember feeling pretty good about it and feeling pretty energized. I think because there's just tension that builds up when you're working through that stuff and there's a certain amount of like honesty that I felt that I was like okay maybe this has been true for a while maybe that was part of why I felt ready it probably just took me time to 
kind of make it official to myself. Yeah, I think a little bit I had, yeah, doing some like mindfulness stuff. Cause I think even at that point, like prayer had already been a piece that didn't survive the chopping block. And so I didn't find any real like practical reason to pray and it seemed that sort of personal benefits of meditation were more or less the same and so yeah I wasn't I don't recall really having any like much dialogue with God or kind of being in a place where I think I was kind of out of practice with some of that stuff at that point yeah I I remember one of my um fears of deconstructing was like not having a, a inner monologue with someone else or so I thought um, because so much of you know my um, coming into Christianity was based out of like fear and anxiety and like almost mm -hmm. like needing something to rely on um, and so yeah it's kind of like once I felt that monologue turn off I was always uh, really like almost like worryingly curious about how I was going to take to it and if I was going to be able to find like not like be able to avoid a feeling of like loneliness or like a lack of like like dependency that I needed there um so yeah I think that was also one of my like major indicators was when that like monologue turned off and I had kind of gotten over the the, the initial worry that that shouldn't happen and that that was something that was like detrimental to me as a like a thinker or as a person or whatever um so yeah it's interesting to hear you say that yeah that um kind of self-talk I know from a lot of people who have deconstructed or deconverted that kind of repurposing that self-talk has been a really valuable thing for them and just recognizing that like that was you know and for a non-believer looking back that was always you talking to yourself and it but it did have an actual difference. It did make an actual difference in your life. And so, you know, I no longer believe that any of those prayers were like answered in a literal sense, but in, in one sense you are, you know, in kind of trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, there is a sense where that is a valuable skill of being able to take a moment kind of look inside, kind of reorient yourself to your narrative, whatever that is about what you believe about yourself, what you believe about other people, what you believe about what's possible and what's good, and kind of talk, kind of just dwelling on those things, you know, um, I think really does have a big impact. So I know for a lot of people sort of repurposing prayer and more or less kind of keeping a similar practice that's part meditation and part kind of just self-talk I think has been really valuable so I would, I would encourage anyone who's in that position and kind of feeling that loss to not feel like they have to just ditch it cold turkey just because the sort of context that they know it from is explicitly religious yeah i actually uh post deconstruction for me before i had researched it at all i had mm -hmm. been having conversations with uh friends who were believers and those who weren't about 
how I was kind of thinking that prayer was a form of meditation and that mm -hmm. one of the reasons it can be the scripture and I'm not great at quoting it, but um, kind of like people feeling like they've been awarded the understanding is also a feeling that's tied to like present mindedness mm -hmm. um, because life starts to seem more full and even the bad things start to seem more meaningful and have purpose when you're kind of actualizing them as they're happening. And I've noticed that a lot of people who have deconstructed, deconverted, like you said, are people who have studied some form of meditation because I think mm -hmm. that we, we fall in love with and latch on to that kind of feeling of presentness and, you know, self-actualization, self-talk, like you're saying, it does, it almost supplants who we see ourselves as, sometimes good and bad, but if you can do it like positively, it is yeah. super beneficial. And that's something I've always like recommended people who, even if I wasn't doing it in a sense of like, to encourage people to figure out what it is they believe simply that it provides a like a layer of or foundation for them to potentially understand what they believe mm -hmm. more and why they believe it yeah i think um the way we frame truth i think is yeah it plays a really big role in i think religion is true but I think it's true about us. It's not true about the universe. I think what we see in the Bible, in religious ideologies is, is true. It's just true about human nature. It's true about our perception. It's true about our biases and our our strengths and our resourcefulness and and I think a lot of people who I think more or less come out of religion well adjusted I think that recognition is a big part of it of just saying no there is a lot of insight here it's just knowing one, there's a lot of insight here, and it's insight that I can still engage with, that I still have access to, and I can, I, I'm in a place where I feel like I can still hear a Bible verse and think, yeah, that's, that's good, they, that's profound, or they, I like how that was put, like, that's true, but I think it's learning to just turn to, to kind of, like I said before, to not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just recognize how to keep keep hold of a lot of those things. Aaron, <laughs> a little side note, Aaron and I were talking a while back about this essay and a subsequent book I've thought about a little bit, and he's pretty convinced that Baby in the Bathwater is the title <laughs> of what this hypothetical book should be. So every time I say that, Especially in Aaron's company, I, th I think about this book I've considered writing. Anyway. I still believe that. Great. Kristen, what you got? I know you're thinking thoughts. I have so many thoughts, but my main one now is kind of going off of what you said a little bit back as far as um, what happens after this life for you now and just like where your thought is on that. Um, if that's not too intrusive, but I guess 
synopsis of the question would be, do you think you live a more bold and definite existence now than when you were Christian? Yes. I think one of the surprising benefits of of leaving Christianity was it's kind of this yeah I feel like I inhabit myself more fully that I because kind of like I said earlier because part of that process is often sort of looking back and taking ownership of the good and bad parts of our stories and sort of taking those back from the narrative of all the good stuff was God, all the bad stuff was the enemy trying to trip me up, you know, it was spiritual warfare or whatever these different phrases are depending on sort of what what corner of Christianity you're in or you're from. Um, I think part of that that newfound presence, yeah, has made me more bold and there's this idea in Christianity that I'm reminded of too often on the internet by people that I talk to is that oh well now now that you're not a Christian and there's no eternity nothing matters right that if this is an all ending in some sort of you know final destination or final and what they mean to say is in some sort of final judgment right if if you're not ultimately held accountable for your actions or rewarded for them after this life then like what's the point right like what matters about life like aren't you just completely right nihilistic and kind of without purpose or direction and the sort of strange thing is that it's really the opposite of that. I think it's the the belief that this is all we have is what really infuses it with more meaning and gives me a lot more urgency, I think, than I felt as a Christian, even when I thought the stakes were so much higher, right, that there was this sort of eternal reward or damnation on the line now I'm seeing, no, like these moments, these people, this experience is is what we have, you know, and lived conscious experience, I think, is what gives anything value, even if you believe, even if you're a Christian, what you're talking right. about when you're talking about the afterlife, whether it's heaven or hell or whatever, you're just talking about lived experience, right? And you want that to be positive or negative. And the only reason that matters to any of us is because we experience that subjectively. So the value of our life now has the exact same foundation. And so, um, so yeah, I think for me, it's definitely made me bolder and made me feel a little bit truer while also giving me a sense of, kind of positive sense of urgency. I think it's funny because I feel like in a couple of these podcasts that we've done by now is the reference to being present keeps coming up 
over and over again. And it's so simple, but just so impacting and something that we all need to be aware of and just be present in every moment and take the beauty in that. So I agree with you there completely. And then my follow-up to that is, does that make you scared of what happens after or are you more at peace with it now? Or do you have a different view of what happens if you feel comfortable to answer that um, at this point with where you're at on your journey? Yeah, for me, I don't have much fear about it. I think I feel pretty, I mean, I'm at least pretty confident that we don't have any good reasons for believing anything specific about what happens after we die or that anything at all happens. Um, so I kind of as a rule of thumb try to hold all of these ideas as sort of provisionally as possible in the sense of saying like until I have more information I'm not married to this idea but yeah I don't think I have much much fear associated to it I think it seems like the most likely explanation to me is that we just kind of cease you know like it will be the same for us you know an example given often is that it'll be the same to us as it was before we were born you know it is it's easy for us in our current context to sort of feel the sense of loss or attachment with that but you know it i think in its actual reality it's it just kind of it is it is what it is in a sense i know for a lot of people that especially hell is a hard thing to get over because I think depending on the sort of specific culture that you've grown up in, that's a really big kind of cornerstone of what motivates a lot of these ideas for people. And it's a real source of, of shame and, of fear and you know that's leveraged in some communities explicitly and in others it's just it's not you know abused but it is a I think a generally like kind of abusive idea and I think for a lot of people they have a really hard time letting go of that of just always feeling like well what if I'm wrong you know it's sort of like Pascal's wager which is like well, if you're if you're wrong about religion, no big consequence. Um, if you are a Christian, but if you're a non-believer and you're wrong, then you potentially have like a real eternal consequence, you know. And so, doesn't it make most sense just to just to buy into it? But I think I think that's a real lingering thing for a lot of people. But thankfully, I think I've managed to avoid that. <laughs> Thank God you're a five. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I guess I'm just pretty naturally pragmatic about that kind of stuff. 
I'll just be a six over here. I, I don't want this to sound dark, but I, and this may have spawned a little bit from like over contemplating like my own mortality when I was like anxiety stricken as a like mid 20 year old. All right, give it to us. I, I've kind of like more, I became a little bit more excited about the idea that there wasn't anything after a while because it felt like this, if our consciousness or whatever followed us, like how taxing the idea of an eternity feel and i know a lot of people would say well you wouldn't really know it it would be bliss whatever 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 the stresses of the understanding of there not being time would be gone or whatever but for me i'm like man it kind of just feels restful if like at the end of this it's just done but... <laughs> yeah i i kind of feel the same way um except that i would like to live for 300 years or something first so i'm totally if science solves that some people are kind of on that on that page of like, no, it's too long for me. I think I'd rather just like go at a normal pace. I'm like, no, I mean, if it's a decent quality of life, I'm down to stick around as long, <laughs> as, long as I can. I've always jumped into conversations and jumped down rabbit holes of like what it would do to the human psyche if like all of a sudden like another hundred years was on the table and our like thoughts about our mortality were like stretched out and how old people would react if they knew they had like a lot more time to live. If somebody wrote that novel and like actualized it, I'd buy it. Maybe it should be you, Alan. Oh, there we go. I mean, in some ways that is... We are kind of living that, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people were basically living half as long. And so oftentimes we sort of lose lose sight of that progress and think living for 200 years or something, would, oh, surely that would be too much. But I think if humans are good at anything, it's calibrating to <laughs> new environments, to sort of making do with what we have. And sure, I mean, there's a lot of things we're not good at, but um, yeah, I think it would, we would make it work. So personally, I'm in. I have a, like a short question that I think kind of follows up on what Kristen was talking about, like on thoughts about the afterlife and what that belief or disbelief of it does. Have you in your life, even before your deconstruction and since it, are there any aspects of life or existence or the mind or anything of that nature, spirituality, that you've experienced that you still potentially don't have answers for? And if there mm. are those things, have they in any way dictated like how you classify what you are as like a believer of whatever in this world or a non-believer? Like, has it changed whether you consider yourself atheist, agnostic, and yet just mainly like? Have there been experiences that you think are like otherworldly, somewhat like maybe in between the spiritual world? Is there anything like that? I'm pretty convinced that UFOs and aliens probably exist. Um, <laughs> if that was a maybe not what you're expecting. No, on a serious note, um, yeah, part of my deconstruction was trying to take a hard look at the experiences that I'd had. Um, the sort of Christian culture I'd grown up in was relatively charismatic at times. Um, Tongues. So I've had, yep, um, not a ton, but like it wasn't like full-blown charismatic, but it was definitely like, <laughs> exactly. Um right tasteful tongue it 
so just because of that, and probably not coincidentally, just because of my, you know, very full involvement with music for a lot of those years, I have had a lot of very emotional experiences in in worship, whether it was leading music and leading sort of groups of people in songs or just experiencing that myself or being prayed for by groups of people that I cared about and that cared about me. I mean, in any context, that's super powerful. And, you know, there's times where I've, even as a five, have wept, you know, and like felt transformation even in those moments. And so that was definitely definitely one of those things that was kind of towards the end of that process I think of trying to figure out like what what is that okay if I don't if I can't attach these these other ideas these sort of beliefs and this theology to that necessarily in the way I used to what is my explanation now which sounds like it's kind of your question and ultimately I think I found that our understanding of the sort of human psyche more or less covers it. Um, I don't know that I've really experienced something that I think is somehow impossible or unexplained. If I take a now kind of dispassionate position, I mean, I think miracles was kind of a way that I really came at that idea was like, okay, if there is something supernatural and unexplainable, so a miracle being like that thing observed, right? Sort of outside of the body in a sense would be sort of the best way to determine that one way or the other. And I dug in pretty hard into that topic and talked to a lot of people I knew who had personally believed that they had witnessed sort of dramatic, you know, like healings, physical healings during church services and on mission trips and stuff. And just felt like the more I sometimes felt kind of rude <laughs> because I sort of intentionally like try to be clear about my intentions, but then also like, I'm really going to challenge what you're about to say because I need to know if it's legit. And so I would kind of play devil's advocate, not to use a term like two on the nose for that, that context, but um, I just couldn't find, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that was well enough substantiated by some sort of lingering evidence or even by the testimony itself to say, well, that's a legitimate mystery. Um, and so, yeah, I guess for, again, sort of a long answer is I think I was able to kind of recontextualize a lot of that in sort of my understanding as limited as it is of sort of human psychology and our different biases and how social context and and cues and different elements of persuasion kind of play 
on us. And so, so yeah, I don't, I guess I, I guess I don't hold a lot of current kind of like space for that sort of vague, yes, there may be a higher power or a, at least not something I'd use the word supernatural for, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, I also found that some of the more um, charismatic aspects of Christianity, which I was eager to believe because it, it sounded like the portion of the, the proof in a way, yeah. because if those things were true, then there was no really deniability on my part. Um, and so I was all, I was like actively seeking for those things as well for a long time, and it was almost discouraging when like like you said almost that pushback and kind of just like clarification of what happened and what was mm -hmm. happening was kind of you know it wasn't it wasn't polite to bring up to people because it was their mm -hmm. moment it was kind of their thing but it also yeah. ended up being one of the things that kind of made me go like I don't feel like I'm really getting a straight answer from. Every everybody like mm -hmm. it felt like i was there were aspects of my belief and faith and understanding of what was happened that were like we weren't actually able to kind of go over those things you know something i still get a lot in these conversations because i still try to foster these conversations with people i know from before people i've met even that just are up for a good faith kind of discussion about this stuff there's often this reflex to assume that I haven't had those experiences because if I had, there's no way you, I could doubt them, right? I think for a lot of people who have had those experiences, the explanation of them is fully convincing that it's from God, right? That, it, that the experience reinforces all of the associated beliefs that they attach to it. And... Yeah, um, and it's a little bit of this kind of circular attribution kind of that I talk about a little. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, they kind of have to reframe my current position or somehow dismiss it by saying, well, you must have never like really believed. You never like really experienced God in the way that I did because you never, you know, like you have to somehow believe that I was always kind of half-assing it or that it was never like really sold on it. Um, but I think that's one of the things about my story that's kind of challenging for some people to grapple with is like, I was all in for a long time. And I've been in enough of those situations to know that the experiences I've had and talked about and the experiences other people have had and talked about are the same. And I don't, like I just said a minute ago, they were in a lot of ways amazing experiences. But the fact that I've sort of redefined my explanation for those, I think is sometimes hard for current believers to kind of grapple with. Um, because for them, that's kind of ultimately the linchpin holding the whole thing together. So for me to say, I'm not convinced by what they consider to be a perfectly convincing experience is kind of a hard thing to resolve. 
uh, Aaron, if, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Um, I think like with this, the, the, the nature of this podcast, we're kind of encouraging a hard like understanding of some of these things. And I'm curious, like, f especially from your perspective and you've kind of come up with like an extremely science-based background and a lot of how you view religion and faith is, is similar and also not the same as uh, non-believers and, and some believers. Um, like when you when you read Landon's piece and hear him hearing him talk now, and Kristen, you're you're welcome to chime in. You guys don't have to answer this either if it's you know not something you want to. But like, how do you? What's your reaction to after having grown up, you know, Kristen in the church and Aaron, um, you know, kind of kind of coming to faith later on in life? What like when you hear these types of uh, observations of like, miraculousness and things like that? Is there? How does it like resonate with you guys? Kristen, you want me to go first or you want to take this? I'll let you go first because I feel like since you jumped in first that you have an answer first. So take the lead. I don't disagree with anything Landon says. Like everything he says makes total sense to me. I don't think that, you know, I like the rejection of everything that he has rejected m makes sense to me. Um, I think the... And I guess my, my question, I'm going to answer that question with a question and then sort of explain what I mean by that. So I think my question to Landon that I was sort of proposing was, is there, a, is there room for him to reintegrate a worldview where evangelical ideas are rejected and the Bible is approached as art and no different than Braveheart. Um, uh, Richard Rohr says that literalism is the lowest form of meaning and if we say that the Bible is art then it's no more or less true than a song is. And if we say, we can even still say that the Bible is divinely inspired. If I take a picture of Alan, and Alan is the image of God, whatever God means, um, then I, my picture is divinely inspired. And, it, and is my picture true? Like it, you, you start to unwind that, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think there is truth in that. So I think when I hear this, my question is, is there room for mysticism where we approach Jesus as an example of how to live? Um, and is in doing that, is there a mystery associated with that? And I suppose that's, you know, I, I think I would call myself a pantheistic almost Christian atheist mystic, um, which is, I, I mean, I, I would, I would be. Rolls off the tongue. It does, doesn't it? I was to say, talk about tongue twisters over here. What was that? So to, to walk through the listeners, um, so pantheism would be the kind of the belief that God is everything. I don't really look at God as sort of a he or a, or something with agency or anything like that, but sort of in being itself. Um, I wouldn't say Christian atheist because Christian atheist looks at Jesus as, you know, as, as an example 
um, but also rejects divinity. And I would say almost Christian atheist because I see a mystery associated with that. And then therefore I would tack the mystic on to the end. Um, so I think the way that I approach this is way closer to what Landon thinks than evangelical Christian America, for sure. Um, but I guess, yeah, to, to sort of question into that, uh, is there room for that, that sort of uh, reintegration? And do you think that the majority of the things that you've rejected are evangelical ideas? I mean, obviously they were at first, and I think you stripped things away as you went forward. Um, I mean, I hold all of this very loosely. I mean, my, my, what I think is subject to change, you know, in 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, I, I try to approach this with an open hand and learn from people as much as possible. And, and truly the only thing I'm certain about is that I'm uncertain about everything. Um, but, I mean, I, I was thinking about this earlier, and to answer a bit of your question, Alan, and also I think this is fascinating, last week um, one of my friends came over and we got some chicken sandwiches from the Honor Bar, which is right down the street from us. Two years ago on that date, him and I were sitting at the Honor Bar together, and he had mentioned how he had wanted to be baptized. And he was something he'd been thinking about, and this was a Sunday night. And Mosaic, uh, which is a church here in Los Angeles, was doing baptisms that night. And we hadn't ordered our food yet, but we both had old fashions at the bar, and we were sitting at the bar. And I said, man, if we leave right now, we can make it over to Mosaic, and you can get baptized, you, and there's time. And he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. So we literally left our drinks at the bar, went to Mosaic, and he got baptized there. And then we came back, to, and he was like, well, I don't have anything to wear. And I said, they'll give you clothes. So we came back, finished our drinks, and got chicken sandwiches. And then we celebrated that last week, to, you know, because that was um, the two-year anniversary of that. Five months after that, and I just looked this up a little bit ago, June 30th, 2019, was when it is your birthday. And that's when Landon sent me that final version of the essay. Yeah, for the for the listener, uh, Aaron got all of the subsequent versions. Him and I were in dialogue for many months before that. Me kind of sending sections and testing ideas, and um, yeah, so he he was very very closely associated with my my process, especially there towards the end. And I think there's something about the way I approach this, which allows someone who wants to be baptized and just got baptized just as comfortable with me as someone who has completely deconstructed all of their faith. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, don't, that's, I mean, I guess that's just something about me, but <laughs> not that this is about me, but I think that's part of the question that you asked Landon or uh, asked Alan, me, the question you asked me, is because I think that's that's such an integral part of the way that I think about all of this. Do you mind if I push on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Push push away. Oh, and by the way, it's the the title I gave you was There's a Baby in the Bathwater. Not as concise, <laughs> but whatever. Tomato tomato. Um so you mentioned or you asked that question, is there room for mysticism? 
And I'd be curious to know if there's a distinction for you between sort of experiencing something, experiencing truth, kind of you, you gave a good example, I think, of this sort of perspective of truth that is a little more esoteric in a sense, um, or at least isn't this kind of binary, straight factual approach. Um, do you think, I'm interested in sort of your internal perspective when you say mysticism, like do you feel like you're experiencing something that's true, not just about us as humans? From my perspective, it seems that consciousness itself is mysterious enough and sort of has enough potential, you know, even if we think about like psychedelics and even to more mild versions of just the sort of impacts of mindfulness meditation and just the dynamics of perception, um, it seems like there's so much room to explore, which I think is why I kind of take that line to Kristen's earlier question about spirituality, which is like, I sort of am of the belief that exploring that space is spirituality. I just stop at sort of associating that with something beyond humanity and more about that sort of potentially unlimited space within humanity. So I'm interested for you, when you say, is the room for mysticism, do you find that mystery to be pointing you towards or giving you a sign of something external to humanity? Because I guess my simple answer is yes. I, I think I would say that there is, um, but I'm wondering how you and I might define that differently. Does that make sense? I'm just wondering if you, if you have some sort of perspective on what is that mysterious element, that mysticism of those experiences or those ideas, do you see those as being external to humanity as in a higher power or sort of whatever, a ground of being, whatever sort of language or image we want to put that in? Or do you see that possibly being more or less sort of encompassed in consciousness? Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yes. Um, you are making sense. Do I see that as outside of humanity? Not really. I'm just wondering if we're saying basically the same thing in different ways or if there is daylight between, between our positions. I'm not sure. So I think for me, this is, this is where it gets a bit fuzzy perhaps. Yeah, and I know the language is fuzzy, which is kind of why I'm interested in, yeah. And I've always really respected your posture in it and kind of for, yeah, for others who maybe to let them in a little bit on my process, like Aaron has always kind of been an interesting, <laughs> you were always kind of the perfect person, I think, to bounce a lot of these ideas off of because you and I kind of came from opposite sides right you were sort of like an 
not sort of. You were an official scientist from that worldview who sort of came into Christianity and found a version of it that is meaningful. And I kind of moved in the other direction. And I think we both have some agreement on the values that are present there, right? Whatever that baby in the bathwater is. I think we have agreement that that baby is there. Um, I think we've just taken some of different postures and how we engage sort of with the, the narrative and kind of some of that sort of infrastructure of Christianity. And so you've always been a very interesting kind of case for me because I feel like we have kind of flopped flop stories but I've always really respected sort of how's you but that was that's been super valuable for me in my process is having someone like Aaron who can kind of affirm the scientific side of my kind of thinking and my approach and the sort of logic of something while also kind of challenging me into you know, potential ways of participation that don't necessarily need to conflict with my sort of intellectual convictions, you know? Anyway, I didn't mean to derail you, but... No, no, no. I mean, I think that's great. And, and, and thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, for me, it's, it's really... When I built a faith foundation, if you want to call it that... Um, it really had no discrepancies with science and logic in any way. I, I just never put those pieces there. Um, so I didn't, I had nothing to deconstruct. And I think to answer your question about this sort of mysticism, I think I look at sort of what Jesus is trying to do as told through the gospels, not so much as told through Paul. I have I have an issue with some of Paul, but anyway, or as, as sort of, as Jesus has told through, you know, stories in the gospels and looking at how I can live that way, the best I can has been transformative for me. And, and I think one of the most transformative things that, um, that I've seen was it's just it's just how I am able to love people and how that has changed, um, and that's really transformed me and and those around me. Uh, I I was a, a pretty um, sh- shallow is not the right word, but just not a very engaging person before. Uh, ask good questions, listening, you know, just loving people and then really exploring that. That's not something I could ever really do. Um, and even in a, in a sort of a, to love people in a forgiving way. So I'll give you a story. If someone said, what is the best evidence that there's a mystery associated with Jesus? This is the story I would tell. We were celebrating Laura's birthday uh, three years ago. And we were at a bar here in Los Angeles. And we went out with some friends. And there was a friend that was there. And, and if he's listening to this, uh, I love you. Um, but 
there was a friend that was there, and he had eaten a bunch of edibles and he was hammered or, or whatever, right? And he's like, cool friend, fine, whatever, not a big deal. And I text him, and I was like, hey, man, like, I don't mind your hugs, but and I don't think the ladies liked it. Um, you know, and he said, oh, you know, it's, I, you know, sorry or whatever, right? So a couple weeks later, we went to a Super Bowl party at a bar here in L.A., and he was there with his wife. And he was also there with one of his really good friends and his friend's fiance. And pretty drunk, again, sometimes I drink and it, I don't act like this. So this is not, a, don't, don't, don't let me pass this off as though it is some sort of excuse because it is not. He was like all over his friend's fiance in front of his wife. And I'm thinking like, what the fuck is going on? And I couldn't really have a conversation with him then because he was wasted. So that's not really helpful. So I sent him an email the next day. And I remember I told one of my friends about this. And this is a friend that I like really look up to. And he's like, man, fuck that guy. Like I would hit him in the face, right? Like if he would have done that. I sent him an email. And no, I'm not like... Let it be known that this is not me patting myself on the back or anything like that. That is not what I am doing with this story. I'm, this is a story of the transformation of leaning into the mystery that is the life of Jesus. That's what I'm trying to tell you. He, or I sent him an email and I was like, hey man, like the way you acted last night was very inappropriate. And then I told him, I was like, I love you. Like, I. No, I know that, like, I know that marriage is hard. Like, if you want to talk about, like, that, if you're having issues with that or anything, like, I'm here to talk to you. Like, I can talk to you about that. And I was like, I know it's hard and I love you. And, like, just let me know if you, if you need anything. And he has been not even remotely exhibiting those behaviors since then. And I've seen him a few different times. And again, he's been totally different. And I know for me that there's no way I would have had the ability to do something like that. And majority of people don't. And I, and I think that the difference between just don't be a dick and lean into the mystery of Jesus with this sort of like radical love, the difference is in those situations do you discard those people or do you not? And for me, that is the mystery. And that's why I'm not a Christian atheist. That's why I'm an almost Christian atheist. Like that's the mystery for me in that particular story. Not to be you know, too long-winded with that, but I think that's, that's one of the things that, that has really, or that's the thing that sort of more than anything I've seen now, could that be a thousand other explanations? Sure. Am I sure that there's like, you know, whatever? Like, no, I'm not sure of anything. But for me, like, it's, it's experiences like that that I leaned in to that mystery of the story of Jesus and what he, he brings to, to our existence. And, and frankly, I think, and I steal this from Irwin, but I think eternal life is the condition in which we're supposed to live this life. I never knew that story, Aaron. And the way you just told it was, it's 
really beautiful, really profound. And I think what you found in it is just amazing for lack of a better word at this moment. I'm just very in awe of that story. Just knowing you now and hearing how you were, it's just very, very insightful to you. I do want to point out really quickly that you started that by saying that you were going to be brief. (laughs) 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 I apologize. Yeah. Thanks for that story, Aaron. I think I mean, yeah, I have similar stories in a sense of kind of from my life in Christianity where I have seen that sort of disarming effect and whether that's just kind of the impact of humility and acceptance in situations where it's so often sort of met with violence or force and kind of how yeah just disarming that can be I don't know but um yeah it kind of reminds me there's a section of the essay which by the way if anyone wants to read this essay there'll be a link in the show notes there'll be a link in the show notes check it out thanks I can't wait to be famous um (laughs) there's this paragraph (laughs) there's this paragraph in the essay uh, that I sent to Aaron, texted him when I kind of articulated this. This is kind of the like, sorry to keep going back to this phrase, but this is the baby in the bathwater portion of the essay. I mean, you got to plug the book title. Right. <laughs> the eventual book. This is the slowest book launch in history. Um, this kind of affirms a little bit of what Aaron was saying, which is that there is a lot of valuable and even trans value and even transformation found in that. So I'm just going to read this little paragraph. I have it pulled up in case it's relevant. Um, but I said, to be clear, I'm not saying that when I pressed into Christian theology that I found nothing or that it was somehow revealed as an empty sham. There are profound and beautiful truths in Christianity. For instance, I see the reality of the cycle of death and rebirth to be a fundamental truth about the universe. Seeds die to grow new plants in concert with the seasons. We burn fields to increase their yield. We break down our muscles to increase our strength. And the carbon that makes up our bodies and supports life on earth is the export of exploding stars. In the story of the life of Jesus, we see him model that this same reality can be applied to human relationships that consciousness can participate voluntarily in that cycle and that we can see our humility and sacrifice become the strength of others. That is an incredible insight into human well-being and one that can be legitimately transformative. Um, Which I think just affirms a little bit of that kind of experience that you had, Aaron, where I think there is a lot of room for that. And I think it's a... And all of my sort of advocating for the value the value of, you know, a secular worldview in a sense, I think we do lose something if we are too rash to dismiss some of these ideas and to sort of associate everything in religion with superstition or dogma, but that they're 
there are a lot of really valuable insights and it's definitely one of those places in my story where it is really a a yes and where I've yes I'm now an, an atheist I'm a non-believer and I've left a lot of that behind but yeah I just want to affirm that I think I'm kind of with you on some <laughs> on some of that and to a degree um that yeah there is there is something there that I I do think we should all embrace a little bit, whether we sort of do that by explicitly affirming certain ideas. But um, yeah, I have always, I'll just say again, kind of respected your your posture in that of sort of finding intellectual honesty while also kind of allowing that narrative and that example of Jesus's life to be something that positively impacts people around you. Cause I think for me, it's easy for this to kind of be an intellectual exercise, but I think if we, if we lose sight of people, if we lose sight of community and if we lose sight of kind of what the pursuit of well being really looks like for ourselves internally, but for sort of our impact, on the world, I think um, that sort of version of atheism or of kind of a secular ideology is a big loss. So anyway. I, I wanted to add in, uh, Carolyn Kuick, if you're listening, that paragraph that, <laughs> that, uh, yeah. that, uh, that Landon just read, yes, I adopted that and said it in your wedding ceremony. That's why it's so familiar. I'm over here like, why is that? Like when I read the <laughs> essay, I was like, why does this sound so familiar? You plagiarized. Plagiarized. Can you believe that yeah, guy? I put that in the oh, podcast. I, I did. You plagiarized, bro. I did. Kristen, Kristen was a bridesmaid at that wedding. So yes, I plagiarized that. <laughs> Wonderful. Did we ever get around to Kristen in that question? Mine, I will have to definitely really dive deep with my psyche and my soul but I'm going to reiterate what Aaron said to you Landon where it's not that I don't agree whatsoever because I definitely see so much of what Landon you have stated Aaron what you have stated and I agree with mostly all of it honestly um especially I think my faith has just taken a turn I know we love that word now um so much in even just this past year just from growing up in a Christian home having that type of narrative already given to you um I think I had to do a lot of reflection because I left the my church that I grew up in when I was about 16 17 and I was one of those who was scorned, I guess, for lack of a better word, in the church um, because of situations excommunicated. Yes. So, sorry, Aaron just sent me a text saying that I'm saying um a lot and it just distracted me. <laughs> what a dick. I'm about to block you, bro. After his heartwarming story. I know. I'm just like, um, 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 let me get like five out. Aaron, you're on my list I think now. you're doing a great job. 
So, and I love it how he's silent this entire time. I'm like ranting on him. I'm listening. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to try. And... <laughs> sure. So with that being said, um, ah! <laughs> I'm nervous. Let me be. So I was scorned in the church. Certain things happened. And then I ran for lack of a better term um, for it. I ran for probably about five years and I just felt very lost and very confused. Then I started building my own faith again around what I truly felt Jesus, God, actually stood for in my own opinion. And that's opinion is my own. Just to be present, to love others, to not cast judgment. And it's the only relationship I've ever known to feel grace. I would say until probably this year, I've started seeing that in so many other people. And I've been reading so many books about like energies and going into spirituality and just, you know, the energy you put out, the energy you attract. So, you know, it could go into that narrative. But just it's the only place I've felt true peace is when I dive into that. So, again, going into spirituality and meditation, again, I am very open and I see all sides just for me and my heart and the relationship that I've built. It's just where I feel the most at home and where I guess my foundation lies at the end of the day. And it's something that I built away from the narrative that I was given when I was born because my relationship is built on totally different values and morals I, I feel versus how I was raised. I was raised in a non-denominational church scene, but at the same time, just certain rules seem very archaic and very judgmental. And it was just, if you're not doing this way, kind of going into not all, not all, I don't want to stereotype, churches go into such a fascination with eternal damnation, like with the idea of hell and cursing people to hell. And I'm just like, I don't agree with that narrative because I would love to believe that the God that I believe in gives grace to others. And, you know, if that's at the end of this road for anyone, then he would have grace and forgiveness because isn't that the entire point? And so I don't know. It's just this gives me a lot to think about. But I guess that's just kind of where I reside. I don't know if that really answered the question, (laughs) but we're going with it. And hopefully I didn't say um too much. I was just going to say that this, this, this does, this feels kind of like the objective of what Landon has been doing this entire time, like starting the conversation, getting people to think about what it is that they truly believe to kind of understand, you know, what it is that's leading their life or, you know, the, the thing that they're attributing so much of their thought process to and their identity to, if it is sought out more and, and whether you land on one side of the, you know, fence or the other, you've still come to a better understanding of like your own existence i agree with that completely yeah i think that's actually really cool because this was the intent was an interview and it turned it and it's like i hope that people that are listening to this turns into a lot of introspection 
Landon, do you have anything specifically? I know we kind of chatted about this. Is there anything that you think that you could potentially want to talk about or that would be beneficial to you? you know, I mean, I'm doing some work now on morality and sort of how that, how objective morality can be defined in a sort of non-religious way. But I think that's probably another, morality might be a separate itty from this, uh, <laughs> this conversation um yeah so i don't have i don't have any like other rabbit trails to go down i wanted to affirm what Kristen said and just say that i i think that's wonderful i think if if you're engaging with a narrative in a way that you feel is making you better and is grounding you and is giving you um some context for for hope and for your values and peace like you said i mean it's hard to put a price tag on on inner peace and so yeah i i just totally affirm kind of that that posture of trying to trying to be honest along the way and say hey this is a narrative that gives me a lot of meaning um and i'm I'm open to being sort of challenged on the specifics. I think, I think your posture in it is really the best case scenario for all of us <laughs> in general. I think even for myself, it's easy to be detached from a lot of that. But I think hearing stories like yours um, and even Aaron's, kind of the posture that you guys have taken I think is a good challenge for me even to remember that, you know, there are sort of forms of participation that are, that are meaningful. And I, you know, I don't need to, in my own kind of personal life, um, I don't need to pretend to be like allergic to those things just because I have these kind of specific arguments, you know, anyway, so thank you for sharing. I appreciated that. Thank you. I just, what you just said touched me very deeply, so thank you for that. I get my quiet voice when I'm touched deeply, so just ignore the little like <laughs> mouse that's coming onto the box. I got one question that's specific to you, and then I have the two that we're going to ask every guest that we have. Great. So the first question is, what are some what are some noteworthy or shocking, funny responses that you got when you went public with your essay? I think the most surprising, I don't, there aren't a lot of funny <laughs> responses off the top of my head. Yeah, it really is. Um, but some of the more shocking or surprising ones, I got some responses from people who were still very involved in churches, um, both as like leaders or as musicians, you know, been pretty connected to that kind of worship team community for a while in different places. And I got some kind of surprising, surprising messages, you know, people sliding into my DMs after that, um, telling me that they basically agreed with what I'm saying, but that 
the kind of the church was their career or they were um you know it just wasn't worth kind of rocking the boat in their family or and again I don't say this as can you believe that isn't that terrible um at all because I have a lot of empathy for that kind of reality for people who deconstruct but have kind of built a life and a way of living even kind of inside the church but I was kind of surprised actually by that that people were willing one I mean I appreciated that I seemingly created a kind of a safe enough space for people to feel that I was kind of trustworthy with that information but um yeah, that was pretty pretty surprising. I think that there were a handful of people that kind of went out of their way to sort of tell me that they're sort of in a deconstructed position, if not deconverted, but that they're they kind of have different connections, but wanted to somehow affirm some of the things I said anyway. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the names. Uh, we have a list of the names of those people. <laughs> yeah, those will be notes. in the show notes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there will ever become a place in the church that's like appropriate to um, naturally talk about deconstruction, and maybe like it will lead to a healthier uh, discourse within the church, and even healthier Christians along the way. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Your last guest, Ryan, like I said, is one of my best friends, and. I think he creates a better space than most. And I think it's a testament to him. Yeah, I think it's a testament to him that even kind of through my deconstruction that sort of his and I's friendship has never really taken a hit, you know? And I think to have a really close friend who's a pastor, um, be able to sort of handle one of his best friends sort of taking the stance that I have and having come from his church and being in a leadership a leadership position there and then sort of having these public conversations about sort of what I see to be the merits or lack thereof of some of these ideas I think it's a Real testament to him as a person, but I think to the potential for churches to be able to to accommodate doubt and even disbelief and to, to be able to invite people into some form of participation and engagement, even if it's outside of the church, that's still, still meaningful. So some people are doing it. Most people, unfortunately, are not, but it can happen. Final two questions. What is one word you would like to be known by? I think I would say balance. I think that's always been a, a struggle for me. I think I have always kind of had these two, what has always kind of felt like two halves of myself. I have this kind of analytical, skeptical, dispassionate side. And I have decided me that 
has been a sort of artist, songwriter, musician piece. And now like a father and a husband. And I think figuring out how or learning how to sort of inhabit both of those as fully as possible is I think a, a lifelong journey, but something that I, I really hope I do well that I can find I can find the balance of the sort of disposition I have towards kind of logical and rational arguments and be able to offer that value to the world but that I also stay present and tender for the people in my life and the people that I engage and the people that hold ideas that I disagree with. And I think that like that pursuit of balance, I think for me is a big, uh, a big ambition of mine. How do you want people to remember you? Similar question, but very different. I would hope that I'm remembered for, man, it's hard to put that into words. I was going to say like clarity I think one of the reasons I wrote this essay in the first place was because I wanted to try and offer language to people who haven't found it or have struggled to find resolution kind of and they're, they're part of their own journey. And I think I'm, I'm gifted in a sense to, it, at very least to kind of like, whether this is really a strength or not, but I can endure a lot of tedious work. <laughs> Even if it's work on myself, I think that I really... I enjoy even that kind of like really digging into an idea and really working it out and trying to figure out how to say it and how to think about it and how to posture myself to it. And so I think if I'm able in my life to in some way offer clarity or language to to other people who are who are searching for it or um in need of it I think I would count that as a win I personally would definitely count that as a win because it sounds like you give people solace and a place to go that gives them answers or at least maybe a little bit of peace and just somewhere to be open and to discuss and to not feel so alone and to have things put a little bit clearer because you are very intelligent and you're very wise. And I think you have a lot to give to people with that. And you're very open-minded with everything. And you look at things in such a different viewpoint that can resonate with so many different people from so many different backgrounds. So being able to have that gift and share it with others, I think, is beautiful. Wow, thank you. 
You're making this Enneagram five a little emotional over here. <laughs> Thank you, those. I appreciate that a lot. Of course. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. Um, Landon, thank you so much for sharing everything. I, I really love how this just devolved into a very natural conversation of questions and intrigue, and uh, it's been it's been fantastic. Yes, yeah, my absolute pleasure. If anyone is interested in these ideas or conversations, or I'm my DMs are always open. So. Oh yes. Would you like to tell us where we can find, where you could be stalked? I have a very unique name, thankfully. So Landon Pontius is pretty easy to find on basically every social media platform. So my username, if that's ever applicable, is usually just Landon Pontius with no spaces. So um, yeah, Facebook um, is probably the place I engage the most in these types of discussions, but um i love any challenge to anything i've said or um i'd love to hear people's stories and try to continue to kind of create this space for people but i know that you had said at one point to me that you were working on sort of a follow-up piece is that anything you want to like discuss or or not discuss necessarily but even like allude to plug it's tricky because it's a really big topic <laughs> so it's it's hard to like give a short plug for um i will say if people um follow the show notes and go to the essay on medium.com if they follow me there um there's not a lot of content there at the moment but i am working on um, some more essays one in particular about morality and sort of how to how to define that and kind of ground it in a um non-religious worldview that I think will be, well, I hope will be meaningful. I found that to be a big sticking point for both non-believers and for believers. It's just not really knowing how to, or not even believing that it's possible to, to have a rationally grounded sort of definition of something that is truly right and wrong and sort of how we navigate life in that sense. And so not that I'm, you know, fully equipped even to, (laughs) to answer that question, but more to come on that, that I hope will be interesting and engaging. So if people want to kind of keep track of me, um, hopefully there's more of this content to come. And if you guys ever want me back on this podcast, I would love to love to come back anytime definitely will happen we need a whole discussion on this next take this next oh man essay. it is juicy guys it's so yeah i'm excited i'm excited about it i like it anyway thanks guys i really appreciate this it's been a wonderful conversation i really appreciate you guys uh engaging and inviting me on i like the i like the space you're creating it seems like a cool uh a cool service to the world so thank you for that for Landon Pontius and my co-hosts Alan Kudrowski and Kristen Downey I'm your host Dr. Aaron Funk and this has been another episode of Itty Pod <laughs>